Good evening, everybody. Turn in your Bibles to uh, Luke 24. Luke, there we go. Thanks. Move it around. Luke, uh, <clears throat> Luke 24. Let's begin with prayer and let's be thankful. Thankful, children of God, to have a time to uh, be with His Word, be with God, to learn more, to uh, reflect on the things that He has provided for us. And so with that in mind, let's pray. Our great God and Father, You are in heaven and holy, and we stand before You as Your children confidently because of the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Your Son, who You have sent and who willingly became like us so that we could become like Him. He did an amazing work, an amazing sacrifice. He went through pain and anguish that we could never comprehend. That we know it was immense, and yet He did it for us. His cost is the highest, yet it was not too high for You to save us. And by giving us Him and His through His work and our faith in Him, We have Him, we have You, and we have this wonderful life that is the spiritual life. We uh, thank You, Father, and we look again to Your Word to find in in it uh, the, the means by which we live the great life that You've given us in obedience to completely give ourselves over to You as we should and are required to as Your children. By grace, in other words, by Your favor, and that we can, <clears throat> by your Spirit, do so. So we ask, Father, that through your word that we'll look at tonight, that you would greatly bless each of us. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the book of Psalms is what we're looking at uh, in terms of prayer. And we're looking at various subjects. We have a very dear uh, subject tonight. That is a theme in the book of Psalms, which is the Messiah. Um, this, I, I've, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to say this, but it, it was daunting for me uh, to, you know, finding the passages on the Messiah that are in the Psalms is not hard. It's, it's quite easy. The work has been done, um, but even if you read through them yourself, they, they're easy to spot. It, it's not, the, the daunting part is how big this is. You know, how magnificent and how important. And, you know, it, it's something, you know, this is like, I, I guess like, you know, the Lord said to Moses, you're on holy ground, take off your shoes. This is something to be respected. Not that every subject in the Word of God isn't like that, but but I think this particularly, and as we grow in grace and knowledge and we learn more about him and what he's done, um, coming before him and the, the words that are about him and his work, uh, they cause us to really, in our souls, to bow our knees and to be extremely reflective and respectful. 
<clears throat> the book of Psalms has everything about him from birth, prehistory actually, uh, and, and his birth to his death to his resurrection to his ascension and session and to his second coming. Uh, they're all it's all there. It's all there. Uh, and so, as uh, Arnold Frutenbaum uh, states, quote the oh here it is. It says the Book of Psalms could be summarized in one sentence, and uh, completely agree here. You know the immensity of the Psalms is is uh, you know I, I think on one hand you can look at the Psalms as all doctrinal, and then you miss the the joy of the music, right? and but you can be all joy in music and miss the message. And so we need to have both. And we'll see that tonight. It uh, well, comes out in them. But anyway, the Psalms are the poetic versions of the messages of the law and the prophets. And yeah, every one of them is poetic poetry. That is uh, many of them prayers, if not all of them at some level are prayers and songs and so on. Uh, we've looked uh, so far at God as creation, God's creation in the Psalms, and what that causes us to do in our prayer to, to contemplate the creative acts of God and His wonderful acts. Uh, the law of God, we looked at that as well. Many Psalms are about God's law and following the law. And when we say law in the Psalms, right in the beginning, in Psalm 1 is about that, uh, is all the Scripture. And then uh, the create uh, the creative acts, right? I did the, we did that, and the history. That's what we did. That was the third one. Was that God's history as He dealt with Israel is also depicted in several Psalms, and that was the last one we did. And now we turn to the Messiah, uh, <clears throat> which now I realize I didn't give it a title, but okay. So God's holy history comes to fulfillment in sending the Messiah. All things point to Him. And, you know, so when he's born, that's not the end of history. It's really the beginning of the, the meaning of history, uh, meaning human history. When he's born in Bethlehem, he starts the real meaning of all things because he is the real meaning of all things, as we'll see. And, and this, is a, this is a far-reaching topic, um, that's, a, that's to put it lightly, uh, to and, and what I'm talking about is not just him. I hate to say it like just him, but but us and him. Right? Why did he come into the world in the first place? You know, why is he born a human? It's for us. It's to save us. And what are we in the church? Is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In Ephesians 1, 22 or 23, I think it's 23. We are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we've been made alive together with him. We've been raised together with him. We have been seated in heavenly places together with him. That's all of us. And every one of those verbs, it's the word together is there in, in the original Greek. That's Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. And so uh, we find here in these Psalms, uh, some great teaching in a poetic way that should give us... Now, poetry is to give us a depth of uh, imagery and meaning and cause us to meditate and contemplate. And that's why they make such great prayers. And 
So, to, to as Jesus said uh, that the Psalms were about him, uh, look at uh, Luke 24, 44. Uh, this after his resurrection, after he comes to the disciples, is act, after he actually probably gave the same Bible study to the two men who, on the road to Emmaus, which is right before this. Uh, and so he said to them, he's with the disciples in his resurrection body, and he says to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So he, he makes plain here, which is really interesting, that he said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So this wouldn't be the first time, therefore, that he spoke to them or taught them about himself in the Old Testament it's just that now that they're able to understand the, uh, their preconceived notions as, as Jews uh, and, and the, the environment that they were brought up in, in Israel at the time, which would have really happened at any time in Israel, uh, <clears throat> that they, you know, as Jesus pointed these things out to them during his, before he died, they, they didn't quite get it, and that's pretty obvious here. But now, they do. And, you know, it's, you can't deny that, you know, that what these scriptures say is true when a resurrected Jesus is sitting before you teaching you, and he's got, you know, the nail prints on his hands and his feet. Um, and, man, what a Bible study this would have been. <coughs> and so, it's, Moses, which is Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, the prophets, all the prophets, major and minor, and the Psalms. And all of this speak of him. Uh, now, as it says in Colossians, and this is the benefit to us uh, in this age, is that our whole life can be him. Notice I didn't say like him. I'm our life is to be like him. We don't become gods. We don't become little Christs or anything like that. Uh, but I'm purposely leaving out the like here and following exactly as it's stated in Colossians 3, 4, Christ who is our life. Uh, and in this sentence, Paul writes, Christ who is our life, when he appears, then also we shall appear with him in glory. Now think about that. Christ who is our life, when he appears, then we also, meaning all of us in the body of Christ, shall appear with him in glory. And see, this that verb is, it's not even in the sentence. You don't have to. Now I've learned this in Greek class. You don't have to have the to be verb in there when you've got two these two nouns, which is first the formal noun, Christos, Christ, and then you have uh, life, which is zoe, and they're both right next to each other in the nominative, and it, it means that they are one and the same. Now, they're not exactly the same, because that would make us all Christ, right? So, we're not Christ. We're not even, as some like want to teach that we're like little Christ, and I, I can't stand that language. I mean, those two words shouldn't go together. It's like a little bit of eternity. You know what I mean? You can't have that. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> Eternity's not little. Christ isn't little. We're not little Christ. But his life 
is to be ours. The reason why I leave out like is because in our culture, in our language, like doesn't mean the same. Right? Uh, and he said what? Love, I've given you my love, love like I do. I'm giving you my joy, I'm giving you my peace, I'm giving you my word, my life, right? But like, you know, when you say well, that, that tastes like chicken, there were so many things taste like chicken. It's not the same though, right? It's like it, and that's why I want to leave the word like out in this particular lesson, because I want to emphasize this. We are to be like him, like him in behavior, in virtue, in thinking, in action, in speech. Um, but it's not something that's separate from him. And, and that's the thing about like, is I can say, well, I'm going to be like him, and you know, he's something different than me. And here's the thing. In, notice, in this passage, not just here, we're not, we are in him and he's in us. He's the head, we're the body. Right? We're the fullness of him. Or we complete, in a way, him. So we're his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he fills his body. And that means all of us. And so, and as he says in this passage, when he appears, we appear with him in glory. That means where he goes, we go. And so, in a way, and as you know, as God made marriage, the two become one flesh. What are we with Christ? Right, the two become one flesh. He's in us, and we're in him. And it doesn't make us gods or Christ or anything. It actually has some very mysterious aspects to this, but. Um, so, getting back to the Psalms, we'll talk more about that in a minute. When in prayer with these Psalms, there could be several things that we can focus on. From his birth all the way to his second coming, every aspect of his program, if you want to call it that, his events, what he does, every aspect of them can be found in the Psalms. His birth, when we focus on that, will give us the joy of Christmas. And I went through years of my life where Christmas was not joyous at all. That was after my wife had died, and it was just terrible. Uh, and then that was changed by God. Thank you, God. <laughs> and, you know, and when you were a kid, and I know in some families it's not, but, you know, when, when Christmas was exciting, why was it? And it should be for us. And it doesn't matter if December 25th is the day he was born. It's probably most likely not. But it's that we celebrate the birth of our Lord. And as in Israel, where the rituals that they had, it's not that this is a prescribed ritual to us. Whatever you do on Christmas is, you know, it's up to you. But uh, the rituals that they had were no different than God himself. And we'll see that as well. Um, the rituals... All that Israel did in the temple, the feasts, the festivals, they all spoke of Christ. And the Ark of the Covenant was Christ. Now, of course, it wasn't him. But to uh, a Jew back then, you know, to before, before they started worshiping the items as separate from God, and Jesus took issue with this. He said, you know, you swear on the temple, you swear on the gold in the temple, and so on. And as if they're they're different, you know, what is the temple, or what was it? 
And I mean, it depicted heaven. But it wasn't to be separate from heaven. And it was so not separate from heaven that if, if the high priest went in there or any of the priests went into the holy place and didn't do it right, they died. The presence of Shekinah glory was there. Uh, so the, the, his birth to give us joy, his sufferings break our hearts. And, you know, there's, Christ was a man of sorrows. At times we're sorrowful. Our hearts get broken. And that doesn't mean that we don't have his joy. It just means that, um, you know, to, to, to actually suffer as he suffered is, well, we'll see that as well. I, I mean, it's, it's something that uh, we have to experience. And it's God's will that we do. To experience the suffering as Christ suffered. And none of us, you know, no, none of us are all excited for that, but it's necessary because his life is our life. And, and, and so if, here's the thing. And if we separate our lives from his life, say, well, that was good for him, but not, you know, I don't want to go through any kind of undeserved suffering like that. Uh, that kind of love was good for him, but, you know, I'm not him. I'm not going to love like he loved. I got to you know water it down a little. Uh, yeah, that was good for him, but I'm not going to sacrifice and give to and love my enemies. I'm not going to do that. That was good for him. But see, what you're doing there is you're separating yourself from him, and then you start worshiping the life that you make, and it gets it gets ruined. The whole thing gets ruined. Uh, his resurrection glory at the right hand of God. We see this in the Psalms. We see it in the Scripture. It should excite to us happiness, great happiness, because he's coming back. And he could come back right now. Never works. Never going to work. But he's coming. he could come back at any moment. So what he does and what he is must affect us deeply. What he does and what he is must affect us deeply. If this relationship with us is as tight as Paul writes in Colossians, that it's actually the same life, and it is, head and body in him, him and us, then if we, as we're reading about and thinking about and praying about what he has done, if that's not affecting us on a deep level, then there's, there's a disconnect, there's a separation. And we have to mend that. Now, all believers, right, we're commanded to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, fixing our eyes on him. And that means that we at times do not. And for some believers, they don't do it hardly ever. Now, of course, if they are believers, per Keith and I's discussion before, that's between them and God. But, it, you know, as uh, we were talking about it, and the, the Corinthian church had a major problem. So did the Galatian church. And they were focusing on the wrong thing. There was a disconnect. They saw themselves as separate from Christ rather than what they were. And Paul told them this. You are the temple of the living God, 1 Corinthians 6.19. That Christ indwells you. And he said to them, when you're sleeping with a harlot, you're combining the temple of God with a harlot. And he said to them, does that make any sense to you? <clears throat> so all of these aspects and experiences that we see of Christ, when we see him suffer, 
how do we, if we just kind of look at that and say, yeah, well, you know, he had to do that or whatever. I'm, I'm just thinking of the ways that I used to think about it when I was an arrogant young man. Now I'm an arrogant old, old man. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, if when you see Christ's heart broken, if it doesn't kind of break yours, I'm just saying, you know, how do I put this? You're not required to have certain emotions by command in the Scripture, right? The Scripture doesn't command you to feel this way or feel that way. So, you know, don't listen to your pastor if he tells you to do that. But <clears throat> let's put it this way. If the things that Christ has gone through don't affect you on a personal level, then there might be, and you should seek God in prayer about this and seek his word, there might be some kind of separation where in your mind that your life is lived separate from God's. So think about, you know, how people... They and Christians do this. They they live their own life for what, however many hours there are in a week. I used to know that number, and one hour a week on Sunday they stop that life. They go to church. They do the church thing. They leave the church, and the clock starts again for their own lives. And what are they doing? Why do they not have a relationship with God? Because on a day in and day out basis, they're not walking with Him. They think the church is where God is, whereas in this age, the church is you. The temple is not the building. The temple is you. We can make a church in a field. We can make a church in a broom closet or a basement. Right? If all we had was the smelly janitor, well, they, they fixed the smell, thank, thankfully. But if we had the smelly janitor's closet and we all had to get in there, fortunately for our church, we would fit. I said fortunately, right? That, uh, that would be our church. That's the church. Because we are the temple of God. If our lives, and what we're going to see here is that it's everything in your life. Everything. When you work, who are you to work? Who are you working for, as a believer? You know, what did Paul? Paul writes it several, a couple of times. You work as unto the Lord, right? If you're a husband, you treat your wife as what? Christ loves the church. If you're a wife, you submit yourself to your husband. Subject is the word to your husband as the church does to Christ. If you're gonna, if you love. Whose love are you using? If you have hope, whose hope? If you have peace, whose peace? If you have joy, whose joy? If you're a, even this, remember in, in Ephesians 6, if you're a slave, who's your real master? If you're a master, who are you accountable to? And I'd say, well, wait a minute. What part of my life isn't Christ? And Christ would say, come on, dummy. You know the answer to that. No part. And you see, the things that we keep separate from him, the things that we want to say, these are ours, and there's nothing quote-unquote religious about them, or spiritual, if you will, then those are things that are going to become little cancers in our souls. And so, that's. But th- this is a process, right? I, you know, we all wish, and I'm sure you do, that of all any things that I'm that I'm holding separate or anything in my my soul that's not completely committed to Him, I wish I could just, you know, make it make it so, as Jean-Luc Picard would say, and if you watch that show, 
Star Trek New Generation. He would say, make it so, and it happened. He's a captain, you know. But we, we can't do that. This takes, it takes study. It takes prayer. It takes perseverance. It takes more study, rinse and repeat. This, it takes time, and God is patient. And I always love when, when pastor used to always say that, you know, God's looking at the finished product as well. It's always comforting. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a process. But, you know, it, many years can go by if I'm not pursuing that process through, like, for instance, reading Psalms and praying these Psalms. And, and that's a, a very important part of our Christian life. And then to um, actually pursue that on a day-by-day basis. A lot of time can go by, as we know. And... You know, we're all, we're all going to be dead before we know it. And so there's no time to waste. As, as Paul, you know, today is the day of salvation. All right, so go to Psalm 22. And with my usual wordy introduction, we'll probably not get to all these psalms. But I'll, I'll, we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll, we'll always come back to these. Um, I had the idea today that I would, in, once we finish this prayer doctrine, um, that I would use the Psalms consistently for our next few doctrines or even our books. The, what I, I want us to um, be exposed to the Psalms as much as possible. And I, I have a feeling that once, once all of us get enough exposure, then... <clears throat> then we'll see, you know, and, and then you won't need any prompting anymore. You'll, you'll see how valuable and wonderful they are. So Psalm 22 and 69 are passion psalms. What I, well, of course, passion, what we mean there is the, the suffering of Christ uh, and the cross of Christ. And, but also, and I should have added that on this slide, not that it matters, but I mean, the slide doesn't matter. But what does matter is the resurrection of Christ which is also in this psalm. So notice Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, or Eli, right? That's what that is in Hebrew. That's the priest, you know, the priest of those two knucklehead sons. Uh, and that's, that's what the word means. Priest Eli, who was the high priest uh, in, in 1 Samuel, uh, that's what it means, my God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Uh, you know, so uh, Jesus Christ, you know, how painful is this? Jesus Christ was the first Jew to ever personally address God as Father, consistently. And really no one did that. Right? You wouldn't even the Jews wouldn't even say the name of God. They wouldn't say Yahweh or Yahweh. They wouldn't say it. They'd say Adonai. It was a sacred name, sacred tetragrammaton. That was you just didn't say it out of respect. And yet here, Jesus calls him Father, and that was unheard of. But he does it all the time. And sure enough, in this age, he told us to do it. And, uh, and, and I love how, you know, we call him Abba Father in, in Romans and in Galatians. 
But uh, when Jesus prays Psalm 22 from the cross, this is the only place in the Gospel accounts where he addresses God as my God. This is the only place in all the Gospels where he addresses God as my God. And every other occasion, over 170 times, he calls God his Father. 170 times. One time he addresses him as God, and of course that's when he's dying for the sins of the world. So it should, this for being forsaken, he won't even call him father. This, this schism, this, uh, uh, you know, uh, what, what do we want to call it? This uh, valley between them, this, uh, this incredible gorge that is between the two of them. And why? Because Christ is being judged for the sins of the world. You know, and it... It's, it's hard to say too much about this because how could we possibly know? We would just say the words. Jesus Christ is forsaken by his Father as he willingly uh, is judged for our sins. And so they mock him for this in uh, Psalm 22, 8. We're just going to skip through. Uh, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is exactly the words that they said from the foot of the cross. <laughs> you, know, you, you just wonder if they, they said to themselves, you know, those words sound familiar. Where have I heard that before? And so many of them, are, the religious Jews, are they're well-versed in the Psalms. You know, where did they hear this before? Or maybe they, they thought to truly quote it, but I kind of doubt that. Like, but isn't it amazing that here, and... The thing that jazzes me about this, it's the same thought, that David wrote this of his own accord, of his own initiative, of course inspired by the Spirit. But what David writes, the Lord takes as his own and speaks it. And so he makes it his own, but it's David's. But he takes it from David and makes it his own. And then, amazingly, that what the crowd who rejects Christ says is also taken from this. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. They're mocking him. And notice his great suffering. Go down to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. Right? He asked. He said, I thirst from the cross. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is the cross scene written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. It's wonderful. And we get to read it. We get to read it again and again and again. And to in our, you know, in so what how would we pray this? That some would ask and certainly I would. Uh, how about how dare you pray this? Right? This is these are the Lord's words. But they were first David's words and they were given to us. At times you're going to feel forsaken. At times you're going to feel like God is going to look like it, that God doesn't care. That he's not moving in your life. That he's not doing things that you would expect him to. Um, 
And here you go. And you relate this to your Lord. Say, well, can I relate to my Lord at this? This is his cross. But as, as uh, Paul writes in Philippians 3.10, he writes, this is what he wants. This Paul's great desire is in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him. We say, well, that makes sense. And the power of his resurrection. Well, sure, Paul, that, that makes sense too. And the fellowship of his sufferings. What? Why would you want that? Being conformed to his death? That sounds awful. And it is awful. But it's also glorious. Because, and why would Paul want these things? To be a martyr, to show off, to say, look how cool. And no. He knows. It's one thing to say, well, I want to know him. He could have just stopped at that. And so we'd say, like, what I would naturally say in the past is that he wants to fellowship with his suffering so he can know Christ more. And that's true. You would know Christ more. But maybe there's a deeper level here. And the deeper level is Paul understands that he and Christ are one. And where are you going to suffer as he suffered? Only in this life. You're not going to do it in heaven. Where are you going to be conformed to his death? Not in heaven. It can only happen here. But it, and here's the other thing. You can't make it happen. So like in the early church, the, the monks who went out in the wilderness and made themselves suffer, the ascetics, uh, they were trying to move this on their own. You can't do that. Christ didn't cause his own suffering. He allowed himself to suffer. He didn't cause it. Uh, it was the will of the Father. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me, right? But your will, not mine. So, if this will come upon us if we're willing. And God will know that. And this is something that we have to ask ourselves. This is something about another thing that we must pray about. And, and meditate on and seek. Do we want to know the power of his, the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death? I mean, I hesitate there if I'm going to be honest. But there's also a part of me that I think is the spiritual part. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> that, um, you know, I kind of want it more than anything. But, you know, how is God going to bring it? It's, and it's, it's again, it's, it's, if it's not painful and difficult, then it's not his suffering. So as we see here, uh, after six hours on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Imagine that. And the stamina that this man had. After six hours on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. During this time, he suffered the outpouring of God's wrath, which were our sins, he felt the pangs of hell itself. He was nailed to the cross. He was naked. They, they nailed him up there naked. His bones protruded. As we see here, I can see my own bones. And below him, they cast lots for his inner garment. And Jesus knows this psalm, of course, fully. And he's watching it all take place right in front of him. And so these psalms are given to us so that we'll frequently meditate and pray about our Lord's incredible suffering. Now, if we're only praying about his incredible suffering and feeling the heartbreak, well then, we're not reading on. Right? Because it's not all that. But why did he do this? And in the Lord's Prayer, this all comes out right actually in the beginning. And when we say, Our Father. 
There's only one reason that we can call God Father, and it's because of this. Christ saved us. So, uh, again, how can we pray this? Again, since David did, and it's in the Bible for us to have, we can pray it. Uh, But here's the thing. We have to be cautious. These prayers pertain to suffering, right? They, these, this particular, the first part of this psalm pertains to suffering. The second part of it pertains to rejoicing and resurrection. Uh, but the, the first part pertains to suffering. If I'm going to speak to God about suffering or my own suffering, I better be very careful. I better not be comparing myself, not comparing myself, but praying in this manner when I'm not actually suffering. Or... I'm suffering because of my bad decisions, my sin. That does not apply here. That's a different prayer. What's the prayer of sinning? Confession. <laughs> that's there, right? And that's that's an everyday thing. But this is about the Lord's suffering. If I'm going to identify with this in prayer, I need to be suffering in that manner. I don't need to be. I can be praying about it coming in the future. Or I could talk to God about maybe I've experienced it in the past. Whatever. We can only rightfully pray these lines when we are or we have participated in Christ's suffering. We would lack understanding if we prayed these words in reference to deserved suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, first off, I haven't forsaken you, but... You're suffering distance from me because of your sin. It's not the same thing. And also, we have to be careful to say, well, you know how uh, we can be sometimes, and I'll lump us all into this, that we can think we're suffering when we're not because we're weak. You know, that's when, that's kind of the kind of thing where your, your kid's crying about something and you say to them, I'll, I'll give you something to cry about. You know, like, seriously, why are you this little bitty thing that is not a problem that you're losing it over? And if we're in a weak state spiritually and we think we're suffering, we're suffering because, uh, I don't know, uh, the supermarket ran out of our favorite, uh, I don't know, frozen dinner. I don't know. That was a stupid analogy. I'm suffering because the gas prices are high, or I'm suffering because, you know, come on, we're talking about Christ suffering here. Uh, Get with it and buck it up. You know, that's that's what God would say to Job, gird yourself like a man, Uh, I'm going to talk to you right now. So anyway, uh, so his redemption now, you get to the, the turning point is at verse 22, his redemption of the church and his resurrection fellowship with them. And here we find us. All right, the church is here. And you're a part of it. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. To the, and to the Jews, it would have been the synagogue. But that's the same. The, the, word, uh, the word for church would mean uh, the same thing. where we gather, and notice when we gather who's in our midst. And that's why we should, you know, uh, church is not something that I I have to do. It's more than that. When we gather together, Christ is in our midst. And we can easily lose sight of that. 
And that's when the church becomes stale. You know, any church, not this one, but it, and it, but it can happen here. It can happen anywhere. That we forget that when we're gathering together, Christ is in our midst. When we're singing together on Sunday, Christ is in our midst. Everything we're doing. Everything. So, you know, if he's going to praise the brethren, he's got to be alive. And sure enough, this is exactly the brethren are us and the church and also in the future, the future Israel and the promises to her will be fulfilled. And the whole remainder of the psalm now is about him alive, showing us as the brethren, meaning that he was our successful substitute. I mean, we wouldn't be his brethren if the work on the cross wasn't successful, and it was, and he rises from the dead. And therefore, if he lives, we live with him. That's why resurrection is such a joy. So here, when I'm praying about resurrection, see, this is something to bring up to God and talk to God and go to God in prayer. Say you're just having a humdrum day. I don't know. You know, the details of life and things can get on us, get on our nerves and make us kind of bitter and angry. Pray. Right? You've probably got some sins to confess there. Confess them and pray. Jesus, didn't, Jesus put the confession after we talked to God. To the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. The confession comes after. So it doesn't, you don't have to do it right at the front. It's not, it's not see, thinking that, you, that God's not going to hear a word unless you say a sin, it means that we have judicial power over sin. It means that what we do in confession can kind of turn sin on and turn sin off. We don't have that power. Jesus has judicial power. We're justified. <clears throat> what Christ is after is for us overcoming sin, for being aware of it, to bring those weaknesses and sins out into the light before your Father in His perfect, holy, righteous light and deal with them and overcome them. I mean, that's what I see confession as doing. Um, and so, with him... Now, David wrote these lines, and in the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who that writer is, in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, it says that Jesus is not, a, not ashamed to call us brethren, saying... And so, the writer of Hebrews puts these words, saying... In the mouth of Christ, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. These are David's words. and I love it. They're put in the Lord's mouth. So, uh, now in this passage, I don't know why I didn't have you turn back and forth. I thought we would just stay in the Psalms. But in this passage in Hebrews 2, <clears throat> it says right after this, right after uh, verse 12 and verse 14, he became like us, flesh and blood. And actually, always in the scripture, it's always blood and flesh. But for whatever reason, English likes flesh and blood better, and we always reverse them. It doesn't matter. What it means is humanity. He became like us, flesh and blood, so that he could defeat death and the devil for us. He became flesh and blood. He became human so that he could defeat death and the one who had power over death, who is the devil. And so what did he do? By becoming us, he freed us. He freed us from death, which is the result of sin, 
and he freed us from the devil who is the ruler of the world. And we're free. Free, you know, free means that we're not alone, you know, roam, roaming around. It means we're free now in him. So he's our master. He's our husband. We're in him, and but, and but free in him. And so this same principle applies. And this is what we want to, one of the many things that we want to remember when we're reading and praying these Psalms is that he became us so that we could become him. I purposely left the like out. I know it's like. We're not becoming Christ. But again, following the Colossians 3 passage and this, our union with him, he became us so that we could become him. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor could become rich. So the result of the suffering Savior is the victorious Savior. Now, what did he do? What didn't he do? Uh, Who among us, of all the works that we do, how many of them are good? Hmm, Good luck determining that. Uh, you know, for you to have a perfectly good work, your motivation has to be right. You can't be have any hidden ulterior motives, and you know it has to be pure. <laughs> I think, it, say, like for instance, in prayer, you say, "Well, yeah, my prayer life is." And I hope yours is improved, like mine has. But and if it hasn't, I hope it will. But um, you know, still, even loving prayer more than ever. We still will find ourselves we're praying, and if maybe our heads are a little tired or we're a little distracted, and then there goes our mind, or off somewhere else. Right in the middle of the prayer, I just imagine God up in heaven going, do 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 do, do you know, just waiting for you to pick it up again. But uh, you know, who, this is my point: who among us could remotely do anything like Him? I say, well, wait a minute, I love like Him. I have joy like him. I, I do work. He said, greater works than me shall you do. But think about it. We, and we do all of that stuff. But like he did, like just like he did, with his perfect motivation and his perfect love of the Father and his perfect keeping of his will, his sinlessness. Shoot. Who of us? This is my point. Who of us could be proud of our works? Pride is a killer. Pride makes things about me. And when it's about me, that's separation. Then I start to worship me. Yeah, in Israel, they started to worship their rituals. They started to worship the temple. They started to worship the veil. They started to worship the sacrifices. They, they started to worship the things that were God. The temple was supposed to be heaven with God inside. That's what it was. They started to worship the things and the rituals. And they grew to love them and they separated them from God. And as soon as you do that, that thing becomes the thing that you worship. It becomes like a cancer. And that's why Christ made it clear you can't serve two masters. And you are not separate from him either. Nor am I. I don't have my life in his life. Nope. I may want it, but I don't have it. That's why Christ said you have no more rights on earth. You have no more rights. So 
wait a minute, what? Yeah, if they hit you on the cheek, give them the other. They steal your shirt, give them your coat. You have no more rights. You're with me now. You're completely mine. And, you know, so it takes us a while to grab hold of this because we so often want some part of our lives to be still ours. And it's a, I find this, uh, first off, I find the patience of God, thank you. Because this takes time. At least it does for me. And if someone says to me, you know, you need to hurry it up or whatever, I'll be like, (laughs) yeah, I am what I am by the grace of God. I I can only go so fast at this. Um, But, you know, I know we all see ourselves in our souls. Um, And, uh, you know, if you're honest and you're humble with yourself, then, you know, it's just things that need to be given over. And, uh, you know, we, we we don't want to. And God will be, so okay, we'll be patient. Patient for a while. And then he's going to bring, you know, he brings in whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants his best for you. So, um, the writer of this psalm, David, yeah, he danced before the ark. You know about this, and uh, I think it's in Chronicles, where David dances before the ark, and this is because, well, he first went to get the ark. His uh, predecessor, King Saul, did not care for the ark at all, which makes sense for Saul. Uh, but the, the ark was at, uh, what is it, Kiriath-Jerim, place like that. Anyway, uh, and David is like, now that he's he's the one, David's the one to conquer Jerusalem, calls it the city of David. This is going to be our capital. This is where Zion is. And David says, we're going to go get the ark. So he goes and gets the ark, and he's very excited about this. But David does not follow the law. And they put it on a cart. And instead of having the poles and having the right guys lift the poles, you need to have this, the right guys from the right tribe. There's a whole procedure to this. They don't follow the procedure. And when the ark starts to tip over from the cart, somebody touches it. And, uh, and I can almost remember that guy's name. But he touches it and he dies. What's the name? Uzziah. Uzziah? That's right. There's a Z in it. And so that's it. A to Z, dead. Uzziah, done. Because he touched it. Now, why why did that happen? They didn't follow the rules. So if you then, is a wonderful, but I think it's in First Chronicles 15, that number sticks in my head for some reason, that David, now, he, David's mad at God. He wanted the ark so bad. And then he calms down and he realizes his error. And, he, and there's this wonderful thing written out about him, how he instructs everybody, we're going to go back and get the ark. And we're going to do it exactly the way God said. And God what, teaches David humility to the law. It doesn't matter how excited you are about the ark. It doesn't matter how excited you are about me. If you're not going to follow my way, then it ain't going to work. All right, so there's, there's a beautiful lesson in, I'm all excited with emotions, but I'm not actually doing it God's way. So get excited, but do it God's way. Because for some of us, we say, well, 
come on, man, morals and law and doing this and doing that and doing this and doing that. Doesn't that sound like cold religion? A cauldron of cold religious moral rules. And so we're tempted to throw the rules out and make our own. And get all excited about it. So we're excited about God. Jesus loves me. That's not how it works. You've got to follow the rules. God's law. You have to follow it. So when David gets the ark, here comes the ark. It's in Jerusalem, because they did it right. And David dances before the ark. Always, <laughs> Pastor McLaughlin used to always say David was dancing in his underwear. Uh, it doesn't say that. <laughs> it was always a good good picture. But he's in an ephod. He's in a linen ephod. It doesn't say that he's only wearing an ephod, you know, but he's he's wearing a linen ephod. Uh, he's not in his like battle armor or anything. He's he's actually dressed himself like a priest because it's who wore an ephod, and he's dancing before the ark. And he danced with such reckless abandon that his wife, one of his wives, Michal, who sees him from the window, sees that he's making a fool out of himself. And she hates him for it. And she tells him this. And David says to her, what else was I going to do? I love the ark. He didn't really say the ark. He loves the Lord. David didn't care that he was making a fool out of himself or not. Why? Because he was rejoicing in the Lord. So here's the thing for us today. Did David see the ark as different from God? Is it just a box? David sees the ark as God himself. Now, sure, it's not God. We know that. But David doesn't separate God from the ark. He doesn't say, well, go get that box. It needs to be in this tent up on that hill. Let's just get it up there. You know, like he's building a house or something. No, David's dancing in his, not in his underwear, but I love the, I love the picture. This McLaughlin had a flair about him when he would, when he would teach. But that, uh, yeah, that he's he's dancing, and he's the king, and he just loses reckless abandon with great joy. This is what we're after. There are a lot of ethics and morals in the Christian life, and if we just look at them only, and we say, well, they're just burdensome things that we have to do, then it will seem like cold religion. But we must never, ever, ever toss them away and self-justify the strict morality of God's law. His law is strict. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made sure to tell us these are what the laws of God really mean. And they go from not just your actions, but to exactly deep down in how you think. But what did David have here? David is a keeper of the law. Of course, he's not sinless. We know that. But he loves the Lord and he loves his law. And he also here shows his joy. Great joy over a box. But to him, it's way more than a box. So we must keep his commandments and we must also have joy in our hearts. And the Psalms are to give us this joy. There are songs about everything, about our Savior here, 
There's songs about our husbands. When we pray them, when we sing them, we're rejoicing. But, you know, and, and some, in prayer, isn't prayer sometimes laborious? I say, I, I don't really feel like praying right now, but I'm going to pray. And then my concentration is difficult, but I'm going to pray. And, you know, and it, it can be it difficult. How about going to church? Do you always want to go? I remember uh, some young person years ago said, should I go to church when I don't feel like it? And she was asking me about her motivation. I said, well, look, if you go to church even when you don't feel about like, like doing it, what does that say of your love of God's Word? I mean, unless you're going for another reason. But if you don't feel like going, but you go on a rainy night, cold, and, and our Christian lives are often like this. Say often, I don't know how much, it's different for every person. But there's things that i got to do that I don't want to do, but I do them. Because it's my duty. It's my calling. I must obey. But there's also other joys. Like when you gather together at a Thanksgiving or Christmas service. I love those. I remember one we had, it wasn't last year, the year before. I remember how much I enjoyed it. It was an electric atmosphere here. The royal family. It was wonderful. I remember the message I did was on, uh, on uh, the pilgrims. And it was it was very Thanksgiving-y. And we even had food here. And it was great. It was just great. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, special friends, special food, favorite holiday, holiday songs. Are they just things? You know, on Sunday, so we sing three songs. We just, pick, just get it out of the way. Right? I said, Chris, just pick us three songs. I always leave, I leave it up to Chris. She does an awesome job at it. And... We just sing them, get them out of the way. Has that got nothing to do with God? What if you don't like to sing? It doesn't matter. What if your voice is terrible? Well, then just sing quietly. For the, do, do us the rest of us a favor. Deb. <laughs> just kidding. But, uh, you know, is it separate from God? That's my point. Are the things that we do... In everything we do, not just church, but again, uh, nothing is separate. Nothing is separate from Him. These Psalms, right? We can stop right there. I, I had uh, we're going to do Psalm sixty-nine too, but I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll continue this on Sunday. Um, nothing should be separate, meaning that. Uh, you know, and, and when will nothing be separate? That's the eternal state, right? Face to face with the Lord. It's not, I work is unto the Lord, there's the Lord. It's not like I go to, you know, what my church and Christ is in our midst. Well, of course, he's in our midst. He's, look, I'm looking at him. Oh, don't wait for that day. But here, when I work, here, everything I do, church, work, family, alone time, me, everything, is Christ, and Christ is me. And it's where we have separated parts of our lives from Christ, those parts become the, uh, the mundane, doldrum, laborious 
things. And, they're, and, and what's dangerous about them is that they can become cancerous. They can, like in Israel, they started worshiping the rituals and then the rituals became their religion. They like forgot about God completely. And they did all ritual. And the ritual itself became their, their desire. What if I separate my work from the Lord? Can, I be, can my work become my desire? Like it's the separate desire from God and then it becomes like an idol. And, you're, and, and, and it's yours, isn't it? It's You put you into this. This is your personality. This is your business. This is your work. This is your skill. And when we work, who do we work unto? If we love, whose love is it? If we're a husband or a wife, to who are we responsible? If we're even a slave, who do we serve? If we're a master, to who are we responsible? Once something can be thought of as separately from Christ, it will become separate from him and it will take on a rebellious nature, a cancer of its own. A rebellious, it will become rebellious against God. Nothing in our lives should be separate from Christ. We are him and he is us. And when you turn to these Psalms, you see this over and over and over again. And that's why they're, they're wonderful guides for us in prayer. Because when now when we take this, like Psalm 22, and we take it into prayer, we're really like deeply meditating on it in the presence of the one who is the Word. And Jesus, our mediator, Holy Spirit, is in his power helping us in our prayer because we're weak. And there in the presence and fellowship of the Trinity, we're taking God's very words and taking them to the teacher and having a session with him. And in this you will know the word more deeply. So it's not a Bible class, right? That's a different way of learning. But this is, this is something on your own with God that's different. It's different than Bible class. And it's marvelous. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for our Lord and Savior, who willingly took our sins by which he knew he would be forsaken by you. It was so hard on him that he even prayed if there was any way that that cup could be, that he could be taken from him. But to your will he followed. And to why? To save us, to glorify you, And therefore, Father, our lives must be for your glory. They must be for you, everything. And so give us, Father, the insight as we speak to you in prayer and to help guide us to see the parts of our lives that we are resisting to giving over to you because those things are holding us back. And it's not a matter of who's greater than anybody else. It's a matter of we want to have you in our every part of our lives. And because in that, there is great joy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.